I'm Jeremy Black. I was Professor of History at the University of Exeter in Britain. And I've published quite a lot of books in military history and other topics. And the one we're talking about in particular this evening is one published in the United States by the University of Chicago Press, the leading uh, world publisher, one might say, in cartographic history, history of maps, and in Britain by British Library Books. And it's called A History of the Second World War in 100 Maps. And I have it here. If I dropped it from any height, it would be fatal to somebody on the ground. <laughs> Okay, so then maybe my first question, actually, it's big and heavy because you want to be able to see the details. How did you select from probably what were too many maps? How did you select from the massive choices you had? Right, well, that's a really good question. I mean, what I wanted to do was to try and produce a book that was not only useful for uh, people working on World War II and interested in it, but also important to the history of mapping. And that created a challenge um, to try and do both of those. And also, quite frankly, I wanted to do it differently to the way in which the picture editor wanted to do it, which I thought was a rather dull way, which is we'll do maps on 1939, then on 1940, then on 41. I thought that was ridiculous. I mean, it's been done in other ways. What I wanted to do was to organise it instead conceptually. And if you look at the book, it's organised in terms of geopolitics, strategic, operational, tactical, reportage, sort of newspapers, propaganda, and retrospective. That's maps produced after the war about it. And each of those are categories that deserve attention. One can only do so much in the space of what one's got, uh, which essentially was 80,000 words. I mean, it says 100 maps. It's actually more than 100 maps, but there are 100 main maps. And um, linked to that, I wanted to cover as many countries as possible and to include maps that, for example, were Japanese as well as the standard repertoire. But again, that poses problems because the uh, availability we have varies greatly. So we have um, far fewer maps that are accessible, for example, produced by Chinese forces during the war than we do, shall we say, by the Americans. So I noticed it's interesting that the the original pitch by the editor was, let's do this chronologically. And I agree with you. I think there have been tons of books that are like, let's present the battle maps from before the war, during the war, and after the war. Battle map, battle map, battle map. And your organization, the back third or the back fifth of the book, I thought was particularly interesting, which was the reportage and propaganda chapters. And I thought that was the battle maps we all take for granted as well. They were representative. They were they were useful and utilitarian. And then you get to those maps in the back, which were not necessarily utilitarian. They're presenting things from a particular angle. Can I ask you, in those maps presented to the general public, when you went and looked at those, did you feel after taking a good long look, those had been heavily redacted or things had been fudged because they were looking for one perspective? What was your perspective looking at them? Well, I think that's a very interesting question. I mean, first of all, as you know, I've written extensively on maps in the past. Yes. So this was not my first writing about maps. This was a detailed study, but I knew the kind of things, issues one was going to have. Um, the, in a sense, maps are fit for purpose. They're fit for purpose whether you're doing a tactical map, a strategic map, a newspaper map, or a propaganda map. The two latter categories not necessarily being, there we go, That means I've got an hour till I turn into a vampire. The two latter <laughs> categories not being um, incompatible. Now, a fitness for purpose 
takes us away from this question, which is often a slightly naive one. I don't mean that you're being naive, but it's slightly naive one, which is, is the map right or not? Yes. There is no such thing as a right map. And remember, a map is an approximation on a very small scale of what is occurring on a vast scale. Um, if you're looking at the world as a whole, the world is a sphere, slightly squashed at the poles, but essentially a sphere. And you are represented in that on two dimensions, whether the form you're using is paper or digital or whatever. And you are inevitably going to have um, issues of selection. So you could argue, if you wished to, that all maps are reportage. They're all of them are approximations of reality framed in order to deal with particular issues and problems and for specific audiences. The reason I use the term reportage is I was specifically thinking about how newspapers reported it at the time. I, weren't, I was not implying that was better or worse than other uses of maps. And you do, again, you present each chapter where you're looking at it, operations, reportage, um, trying to not overprivilege one use of map over another. Correct. And I mean, as you may know, I mean, I've also done in this series, um, uh, one on the history of Britain in 100 maps, and I've also done books. I mean, Yale did my maps and history. There's another book called Maps and Politics. And there are also books by me of the mapping of military history as a whole, of naval history as a whole, of maps and fortifications. And there's one by me of urban history, metropolis. And indeed, I edited a, a general history of the world in maps, the Atlas of World History. And I wrote a book called Visions of the World, which is a history of mapping. So I've tried to cover the territory. This one is my most detailed one, and it includes a lengthy text, um, both text in terms of captions and text in terms of chapter introductions, which is, I think, the best available text on the issues of mapping World War II faced by contemporaries and um, the, uh, as it were, differences in quality and scope and the need to develop between the various competents. And one of the points I make repeatedly in it is that there is this fantasy, you see it often voiced in the United States, but sometimes in Britain as well, that the Germans were particularly effective and impressive and only defeated by the superior resources of the other side. And one of the points I'm trying to make is repeatedly, you know, I've written several books on World War II. This is rubbish. German war making was inadequate. They had a very poor grasp of strategy. Their operational means were not particularly impressive. Um, and that extends to their use of maps, their understanding of map making. And there is absolutely no doubt about it that British and American map making was much, much better. And also one ought to make, uh, make the point that the British and the Americans faced far more difficult cartographic challenges because they were engaged in mapping across the world. Uh, they were obviously concerned with mapping for war against Japan, as well as against Italy and Germany. They were concerned very much for mapping at sea, as well as on land. And of course, they had the particular um, sort of long distance mapping required in the combined bomber offensive. And the resources, intellectual ability, um, uh, 
problem-solving put into map-making by the British and the Americans was very impressive, as indeed was their cooperation during the war. They essentially divided up the world in terms of the accumulation of information, as I, uh, cartographic information, as I described in, the, described in the book. They signed an agreement accordingly. And they produced accordingly, and some parts of the world that really had been hopelessly mapped until then, which included much of uh, the Western Pacific, Southwest Pacific, and indeed um, uh, Southeast and Southwest Asia, uh, was you know mapped effectively for really the first time. Can I, that might lead to the next question, which is I'm wondering if there are any maps in the book that you think particularly show that the map does a better job of representing reality. This reality has been misrepresented by, say, books or our impressions from videos or pictures. The map shows something that you don't get if you don't look at this map. Well, I mean, I use – I mean, they were very impressive um, – uh, American maps, the Richard Eads Harrison's one, the aerial views, which of course the American scholar Susan Shulton has also written very impressively about. And I think those aerial perspective maps are very interesting. Now, the point about perspective or projection in maps is that there is not, as it were, a correct perspective or projection. I mean, it is not correct to have north as the top for example. So the kind of maps that he eads Harrison, and he's by no means unique. I have other people doing similar techniques, both British and American, but trying to conceive of what the world meant and its geopolitics meant and its military problems meant once you have long-range aircraft um, presented a cartographic challenge that was uh, very, very significant. It's not that it's right or wrong. It was different. And it enabled people to, for both operational reasons, but also in terms of geopolitically, to make suggestions. So it is generally agreed that Roosevelt was very keen. You know, he urged people to have a map available and a globe available when they listened to his fireside chats. What he wanted to do was to argue uh, against the isolationists, and he wanted to argue that Europe and East Asia were much closer to America as a result of um, air power, and that the notion of what was called hemispheric defence, which had played a significant role in American thought in the late 1930s, was no longer adequate. And, you know, it's not that he was right or wrong. I happen to agree with him, but it's not that he was right or wrong. What he was doing was arguing a case which he was then deploying cartography to support and doing so in an effective way. Now, if you want to, you can call that uh, propaganda. What I think one would rather say is it was a fit-for-purpose support for the argument he was enunciating. He wasn't distorting things, but, you know, he was representing things in a way that supported his argument. Somebody else might produce a different viewpoint. You know, and you could produce a different viewpoint, but he was, you know, using maps to do to to argue in terms of this very close uh, relationship between these um, between these what appeared to be distant continents. 
So that's fascinating in that case, thinking about a map that was fit for a purpose and was deployed and was useful for that purpose. Are there any maps in there you think that show the difficult balance that you mentioned a few times in your chapter introductions between accuracy, they could have been more accurate, but they didn't have the time and resources necessary to make them more accurate. In other words, are there any of those maps that in any ways you think these were failures or represented a misunderstanding by one side or the other because they didn't have the time or the resources to make a better map? Well, that's interesting. I mean, I think any map of a naval engagement in that period was necessarily a partial representation. Because, you know, for example, I've got the one of Battle of Cape Matapan, Mastery in the Mediterranean, that section is is called. And that shows, um, I've got it inside, uh, you know, the movement of the surface warships. That's great. But obviously, at sea... um, there are military units under the water, submarines, which did considerable damage. Um, and there are, in many of the major battles, Lady Gulf, for example, uh, they were a factor in Midway, the Japanese attempt to draw the American ships across a line of submarines. And, of course, classically with Midway, um, or indeed any other uh, naval engagement in which not only carriers were present, but in which also there were um, surface um, Uh, aircraft that could intervene um you've got air power now you cannot effectively in a map really present that if you like total um account so it's not inaccurate to say oh this is a partial map but you have to think about what is the purpose that you've got which is to try and produce a representation and how can you do it in terms of the technology you've got available? And, you know, to have fitted in all of these other elements would, A, have been extraordinarily difficult. It's possible today. But even if you're doing it today, you've got real problems of comprehension as to what is going on. So that's interesting. I completely see how naval maps could be so complicated. You mentioned at the start of the book, you talk about artillery, the shocking precision, which with artillery moved from World War One to World War Two. Maybe you could talk a little about how did the artillery play and the precision of the artillery and the mapping play into the battles in that were fought in World War Two. Oh, well, artillery is tremendously important. More people are killed by artillery than any other on land than any other form of in in combat than any other form and the anti-tank gun in my view is the underrated weapon of world war uh two and of course one of the great problems of um there are you know i've got a fire plan document for alamein but on the whole you do not get built into um uh, most battle plans issues of range and that's because again it would be too complex and you often don't have the intelligence available on the actual guns your opponents have and on top of that they can move the bloody things so and you can move your own so you know you've got an unstable environment i mean one of the things i do have here is i've got what are known as goings maps uh you know goings maps in which they look at the terrain and goings maps as you probably know uh provide you with an indication of where you could deploy tanks which are a form of mobile artillery um as well as fixed artillery pieces so it, the spread momentum in the desert includes a counter battery charge from 23rd of october 42 which is a pretty good indication of 
um, possibilities as far as artillery is concerned. And then if you go forward through the tactical section, you'll find these maps which do draw attention to what you could do um, in terms of, so for example, the one on Isigny-sur-Mer um, with its uh, uh, recording of the defences there includes where you would be able to put artillery. So the same with the map of Walcheren, for example. Um, and, you know, these are quite... Um, uh, impressive maps. I've also got for the Iwo Jima one, that's uh, an American artillery spotter's map from Iwo Jima. So these are all, they need maps. Our artillery is about location of target in place. It's about target acquisition and then the subsequent use of your artillery piece to decide um, how not only you're going to hopefully destroy um, your opponent target, but also then protect yourself and move forward. Um, and you need really good mapping for that. Now, of course, really good mapping is helpfully provided by one of the major uses of air power in this period, which is aerial reconnaissance, which is another area, another sphere, in which the British and the Americans are infinitely superior to the Germans or the Japanese. So I feel like in the post-facto, and maybe you were talking about this at the beginning of the interview, the post-facto understanding of World War II often is that the military tactics by the Germans were incredibly impressive. Much is made of the early blitzes, like we had no idea the tanks could go this fast. We had no idea this would be so successful against our forces. How much did maps play into that? Well, um, if you mean to me, if you mean to say, was, was German blitzkrieg dependent on mapping in an operational yeah. level? Yes, but actually, the general argument now on uh, blitzkrieg is that not that there was a fundamental difference in capability between the Germans and their opponents, but there were specific advantages which maximised the German ability to use an armoured spearhead, because most of the German army, as you probably know, still walked into war, uh, and they had a very heavy use of horses. Uh, but, for example, as I tried to demonstrate in my three other books on World War II, the Germans benefited from the strung-out nature of the Polish and Yugoslav defences. They didn't really have any defence in depth. They benefited from the fact that in the on the offensive on the Western Front, the French had their reserve on their far east, sorry, far, far, far left, threw it forward towards um, northern Belgium and Holland, which enabled the Germans to break through um, in the Middle Meuse, which they only did just against not particularly brilliant infantry. Um, and then the French didn't have the reserves to take them on. Um, there was nothing inevitable about that victory. Um, and I think that's an important point. I think we now better see, I don't, I don't think the general public picks this one up, but we better see the limitations of German war making. And therefore, when they come up against a determined defender able to employ uh, defence in depth and willing to take casualties to it, the Soviets, uh, the Germans lose despite the enormous deployment of forces in 1941. And it's and by forty three, the Germans are being comfortably outfought uh, by the Allies when they're engaged with them. I mean, you know, um, uh, and the German army in the end is defeated. It is possible to defeat Germany without having to drop atom bombs on it. Um, my reaction to a book of maps, you know, you were mentioned earlier about this impressive work of mapping the world for the efforts of World War II. 
I am overwhelmed by the size of, a, of the World War, and I am overwhelmed by the details in every single map, which I think that overwhelm by the average layperson can lead to wanting to oversimplify. So the German Blitzkrieg was brilliant. Call it full stop. We don't have to look at all the fronts of that war. We don't have to look how it was fought in all places. I just want an oversimplified narrative about the bits of World War II. Do you think there is just necessarily, because of the size of a world war, a sense of overwhelm for anyone trying to wrap their head around, how did all of this get lost and won over the time of the war? Well, I think that's, yes. I think that, I mean, what I have described World War II as is an umbrella struggle, an umbrella like the British umbrella. And underneath that, there are many different conflicts, some of which began before. I mean, right. you know, um, whenever you want to start Japan and, and China, you know, you might start that in 37, you might start that in 31, um, and continued during it. Some of them were at cross purposes. Um, classic example in China is the struggle between the nationalists and the communists. Um, and, you know, we tend to think, you're, on a, you're speaking from the United States, most Americans will think of World War II as beginning in 1941. Well, right. Most Soviets won't accept, Russians won't accept the fact that they were Hitler's close ally in 39 to 41. Um, and so, you know, there are many narratives that need to be considered. That leads me to what may might be my last question, a narrative specifically. On page 22, there's a map from Germany that I thought was particularly poignant, and it made me think let about me the research in the past. Of course. Sorry, let me the, page the 22. I think it's page, yes. If I remember, it's page 22. And these ones in the front were interesting because they reminded me of the Bosnia-Herzegovina conflict, which in order to stir people up for conflict against the people who live among them, they presented a narrative of how you are tribally, religiously, or genetically, culturally related to these people you didn't think were related, and these other people around you should not be here. So this map of Germany saying, you know, you haven't thought about these Germans in other countries, but really they are our German people. They came from Germany. They're close to us. And this creation of, you can see the redness of it spread out and think, there is a greater Germany we are responsible for. And I could see how this is like a start of tribal, a tribal-based narrative that gets people stirred up. So they'll fight a war against countries that maybe 10 years before they hadn't been considering because there are poor Germans there. And we have that in Ukraine today. There are Russians in Ukraine. We must help them. Well, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, what we're talking about is a um a map of uh, 1938 by a chap called Ziegfeld about the, as he puts it in the uh, the uh, the uh, caption, he's calling it uh, 87 million Germans in U in Europe, and yeah. he's presenting an idea of a greater German Volk or uh, people, and with the obvious uh, geopolitical requirements, therefore uh, that. Germany must act to gather in all these Germans, which is part of Hitler's racist geopolitics. And I sort of focus a bit on that in the war, uh, in my book. I mean, there's also, as you will know, there's a spread on the Lublin ghetto uh, from 1941 with a German map um, in, you know, depicting the, uh, the, uh, the differences, the spread of the ghetto and how people were to be organized. And I've also got... Um, 
you know, other other material on, as it were, the geopolitics of genocide and uh, the rea- brutal reality of it. Um, I think you're absolutely correct. Uh, you have uh, prefigurements of the present day, echoes of the present day. Um, the, na- the idea of nationhood as being ethnically constructed um, was absolutely central to the uh, German Reich. And linked to it was the idea of racial superiority. And similarly, the Japanese uh, view of the Chinese was a a nature of, a notion of uh, ethnic superiority. Obviously, what this did was lead to a failure to assess the strengths of societies that were disparaged. So the Germans and the Japanese both despised America and Britain as democracies which were essentially hedonistic and uh, weak. Uh, The Germans despised the Soviet Union as a sort of Bolshevik uh, um, society of untermenschen run by Jews, which would have surprised Stalin. Um, And the German view of the United States was that it was deracinated and therefore weak, and of Britain that it was a decadent empire. Now, all of this um, did not help them understand the strengths of these societies. And of course, war, as I argued in my number of my books, and is a matter not just of winning battles in the field and seizing territory, significant as that is, obviously, but also as a matter, primarily a matter, of imposing your will on your impo- opponent. And that involves an understanding of their society, their political system, their belief system, and how best to influence, direct, or intimidate those. Um, And I think it's fair to say that the Germans and the Japanese were pretty poor at that. And it is, uh, that's fascinating to me because I think what gets presented is this propaganda was very, from the the opponents of of the Germans, the propaganda was very dangerous. But I see what you're saying. The propaganda also lulls people. If you're lying to your people about how weak the enemy is, when they are confronted with how unweak, how strong the enemy is, that can lead to a serious problem on the battlefield. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think that that is true, and I think it needs to be thought about. Um, The, um, you know, I think you've got a, um, I think you've got in each of these societies confirmation bias of the most extreme fashion. In other words, They believe in their, and the people that run them believe in their ideology to an extent that they do not understand or appreciate that others might have other values and be willing to stick to them. Um, In the German case, there is very much a triumph of the will. They believe prima facie that their will is superior. And therefore, they are going to win, which is a very naive way to plan military strategy. Uh, my last question is, you have studied in depth World War II for many years. Is there one more thing you're still looking at that's still stuck in your craw, the, the part of the research of World War II, a big question that you're still kind of unpeeling? 
Well, there are still, th- I mean, you know, I'm getting old, so there's only so much left. I've got a book coming out later this year, A History of Artillery, which includes a section on World War II that I particularly found interesting to do because I think World War II as an artillery war tends to be underrated. And indeed, that's part and parcel. I mean, you can see the same thing with the current war in Ukraine. Everybody is so fascinated with new weaponry, to wit at the moment drones, they don't really think about... Um, more established weapon systems and how those develop and have capability.